0: I'd love for you to open up your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. If you need a Bible, there's still loads of them on the table over there. It's page 98 in the Brown Bibles, which uh, you're welcome to take one, by the way, if you don't already own a Bible. We're going to read from Exodus chapter 20. Uh, We'll just read the first six verses. And God spoke all these words Uh, I should just tell you what's going on if you weren't here last, last week. This is the, um, the Ten Commandments. Uh, God is speaking to Moses, the leader of God's people, as they've been delivered from Egypt and led into the wilderness where they're going to spend some time before they go into the land of what is called Canaan at the time. And as God calls the people to be his own, last week one of the things that we were talking about is how this law is more like It's more like wedding vows and the way we understand law these days because it was a covenant relationship. God says, I'll save you so that you can be my people. But if you're going to be my people, then this is how I want you to live. And so he laid down for them what are described as these ten words, these ten commandments as the kind of summary, the distillation, and the headlines of God's will for his people. And God had them written by his own finger on tablets of stone, which Moses brought down from the mountain and were kept at the heart of Israelite worship for centuries in the Ark of the Covenant. And here's what it says, Exodus 20. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord, or Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. That was the first commandment which we unpacked last week. Now we're moving on to this second one. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third And the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands or to thousands of generations or the thousandth generation of those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, last week, I was trying to quickly give you some of the reasons why I think we have to dig into and unpack these commandments for our present age. For one reason, and probably the most important, is that they reflect the heart of God. They reveal something of who He is. They're not arbitrary ideas of what right and wrong is. This is God unfolding to us His own person so that we can understand Him. And anybody who calls himself a Christian is going to want to know who God is. In fact, at the very heart of what it means to be a Christian is to want and to desire and to pursue the knowledge of God. And of course, when you're running away from God, you're closing your mind and your heart to who he is as a person. So when we unpack his law and we start to understand his ways, then we're wanting to turn our hearts over and open them up to who he is as a person, understand his will and his desire. <clears throat> Another reason why these laws are so vital for us is because they, they rescue us. Not in and of themselves, but without God, we have a tendency to wander into Reckless and paths of destruction, don't we? We have a tendency to self-destruct. We have a tendency to wander away into things which do us no good and to treat ourselves in ways which ultimately don't do us any good. And God's law, though it can't act in and of itself, it has to come to us at the power of His Spirit and sort of melt us, has the potency and the power to, to rescue you. To actually call you back from the brink of destruction and to bring you back to a place where you are safe and in his fold. Not, as i said, in and of itself. You have to see how the law of, of God works with the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, which I'll try and unfold a little bit for you later. But for some of you, maybe you've been teetering on the edge as though on the edge of a cliff. That you don't feel close to God. And sometimes his law comes to you with such convicting power. It's like it cuts in between the motivations and intentions of your own heart and spirit and you suddenly see yourself in the light of God's word and you know you have to change. There's a real power to this. I think what probably one of the most thrilling reasons though why we unpack the law of God is because it shows us what Jesus looks like. You See, Jesus is the only man who ever lived who fully embodied what it means to be a law keeper. So when you're studying these words, what you're really doing is getting insights to the man, Jesus Christ. And to be a Christian is to grow in your love of Jesus. It's probably the most important thing about you. Do you remember how Paul described in his letter to the Philippians how everything else in life he counted as rubbish compared with what it means to know Jesus Christ? And the law of God can help us to see the character of Christ, help us to see who he is and his, his loves and his hates and the things that are true of him and draw you into the heart of God. Now, this second commandment, the one that you shouldn't carve images, seems on the face of it probably the most irrelevant of all the commandments for a 21st century Londoner. I don't think that would be true everywhere you go. I've had the privilege of traveling certain parts of the world and seeing how people are in the grip of literal idols in different countries and different religions. But generally speaking, I've only been in one house in London where there was a carved idol. And generally speaking, these things aren't true. When we go over to see family in the other side of the world, you have these things everywhere. In Malaysia and in particularly in the, um, the Chinese households, there are these idols all over the place, but in, in London, I've, I've only ever seen one home that has one of these things. And so your immediate reaction to this might be think, well, even if the law of God is good, what relevance does this thing have to my life? And what I want to show you as we sort of carefully tread through what it means for us, is how it, has, it penetrates us at a very deep level and speaks to us in perhaps the most direct and profound way of all the commandments, actually. Strangely enough. And what I want to show you as we go forward, I want to show you really two things and then bring it back to to God's principle and heart. The two things that I want to show you are that we have a desire to see what we worship and a desire to worship what we see. And somehow those two things describe and encapsulate so much of the the motivations and the actions of the human heart. So I want to begin with this, this first idea that there is a... An urge inside every one of you to see what you worship. So Moses, or God says through Moses, you shall not make for yourself a carved image. Now, this is where we've got to begin. That there is a very, very good inclination, proclivity, desire inside of you to see beyond the mere physical, to see God himself. In fact, I would say that you were built with a desire to see God. When Adam and Eve were put into the garden, they had the privilege of seeing God face to face, of walking with God and knowing him in, in, in totally unhindered personal relationship. They walked with him, it seems, in the cool of the day. There was a sense in which they enjoyed his company like you would enjoy going for lunch with a friend. There was no blockage or breakdown at all in their <coughs> in their walk with God. But of course, in the very earliest story of the Bible, when Adam and Eve fall away from God's will and they fall into sin, the first thing that God does is he exiles them away from his presence. And I think that the hunger to come back and to see and to know God is actually the root hunger of every desire in the human heart and explains every self-destructive behavior. That in some sense, in the deepest part of us, there is an unfulfilled longing that can only truly be met in knowing the living God. It explains why you do the things you do, particularly the pleasure-seeking behaviors that you engage in, and even the ones that you know are destructive to yourself. The ones that, that hurt you, but that you can't help, but you keep going back to. How do you understand the appetites and desires of the human heart unless you recognize that there must be something at the root of them all which makes us all alike run in chaotic and self-destructive habits and patterns of behavior? Why do we do these things? Because something is missing. And so that longing deep inside of us, which the Bible says is the longing to know and to be known by the living God, and that you can only truly find satisfaction and fulfillment in that relationship I think that's a good thing that you have that desire. It's a wonderful thing. It's a God-programmed thing, if we can put it like that. And if you didn't have any spiritual appetite about you, in some sense, you're less of a person. That there is something deficient in your humanity because all of us were made this way. Yet God has hidden himself from us. He's hidden himself from us partly for our own safety because he says, you can't look at me and live because of his holiness and his his distinction from us. But he's also hidden himself from us in order to give us the opportunity to believe in him by faith instead of by sight. Do you remember when, after Jesus is risen from the dead, one of the things that Thomas, he has this desire to to prove that it's Jesus. He isn't quite sure to begin with. And he says, I need to put my fingers in the holes in your hands and my hand in the hole in your side where the spear went up into your heart. I need to see these scars. I need to see these holes. And Jesus, he, he shows him. But he says, blessed are those who believe and have not seen. And while God maintains a certain distance from us in terms of our ability to see him, he does so for the purpose that you can exercise faith and live by faith instead of by sight. Nevertheless, we have a tendency to want to give form to the thing or the person we worship and bring them down into the realm of the visible. Now, it's really ironic, actually, that when God was... When God gave these commands, Moses up on the mountain, he's receiving divine revelation from God. The people down at the bottom of the mountain start engaging in the strangest behavior without Moses around. They ask Aaron, the priest, to form an idol for them. And so he, he collects up all the gold and the jewelry and the stuff which they'd, they'd actually sort of pillaged from the Egyptians. And he melts it all and makes a golden calf. And they all engage in a massive sort of orgy party at the bottom of the mountain. And it's just absolute craziness. They go from worshipping God to absolute self-destruction and madness in the space of a few days because Moses isn't around. I mean, it's like childlike behavior, isn't it? But at the heart of it is this this urge to, to have something that we can see, that we can worship. Because all the all the nations around, they get to see their gods and we don't. We worship this invisible God. How do we even know if he's there if we can't see him? And so, it, really what's going on there is this, this desire to bring God into the visible. And then Aaron announces to them, these are, the, these are the gods who led you out of Egypt. And he says, let's, let's bring a sacrifice to Yahweh. So he, he makes this calf, but then he sort of says that this calf is the living God, is Yahweh. He doesn't pretend it's some other God. He says that this is the living God. So, there's a kind of weird syncretism going on here. They worship, they worship the true God who's the invisible God, but they want to bring him. They want to contain him. They want to sort of bring him into the realm of the visible and give him shape and form, something that you can touch and feel and encounter for yourself. And so they want to make him something that they have, in some sense, in control of. And you ask yourself, well, what is wrong with that? What's wrong with that urge? And the answer is, is actually very simple. That nothing in creation, whether it's a natural thing or a man-made thing, can ever really represent the glory of the living God who is not seen. That if you make something and say, this thing somehow represents God, it's always going to diminish his glory. I think you've got a good example of this, by the way. In all the art that's run through the ages of, of the person of Jesus Christ, Now, if Jesus was around today, I think you could take a photo of him. You could put him on film. He was a real person. But for some reason, the Bible doesn't ever give us any physical descriptions of him. It's frustrating, isn't it? We have physical descriptions of other people in the Bible. We're told about Esau, that he was um, hairy and gruff. And we're told about uh, David, that he was a redhead, which... um, you know, it just goes in his favor. He was ruddy and handsome, is, uh, is what it says of him. But one thing we don't know about is what Jesus looked like, except that he was this Middle Eastern guy. And yet, artists all through the ages have tried to, to, to sort of bring him into the realm of the visible and make him, make him seen, portray him in statues, portray him in paintings. Now, I would ask you, do you think that, that does us good or does it do us harm? Probably the answer is a bit of both, but some of the reasons why quite obviously it it does us harm is because there's a true Jesus who's invisible to us at the moment, seated at the right hand of God. And every time you make an image of him on earth, in some way you are conforming him to a particular idea of who you think Jesus is, and you're actually stripping away some of the truth of who he is. So for example, almost every image that's ever been painted of Jesus is painted with him with long hair which is bizarre because the New Testament says that it is a shame for a man to have long hair because it makes him look like a woman. You can look at what Paul says about that in 1 Corinthians 11. So why do you think when artists portray Jesus not just with long hair, but also with the most effeminate of features, in some way you're, you're distorting who Jesus is, aren't you? Because you are, you're conforming him to our notion of what he ought to be like rather than the true notion of what he is like, when John sees Jesus in the book of Revelation, John 1, he falls on his face as though dead. I've never seen a piece of art that's made me want to fall on my face when I've looked at a painting of Jesus. And then you layer in all the other problems so when we start to do this. We make images of Jesus that make him look like he was an, of the Aryan race, blonde hair and blue eyes, and has l- l- lay at the root of so much of the the racism that pervaded the 21st century. Can you see what I mean? Or you portray him as looking like he was wealthy when he wasn't. Or you portray him as looking handsome when the the Bible says actually the one thing we do know about him is that he had no uh, former appearance to attract us to him. It says in Isaiah 53. Now, I don't know. We could labor this point. Maybe I'm overstating the case. I'm not really sure. But I feel that Part of the reason why we're not meant to make images of God is because the true God, his glory, can't be captured by an image. His holiness, his perfection, can't be captured by an image that we make. So whenever we make an imperfect image of him, it's like the the photos your friends take of you when you weren't ready, right? (laughs) A little bit like that. Except they're probably true renditions of you. Except you don't want them to get out there because they make you look worse don't they? When they catch you mid-mouthful, the food barely hanging in your mouth and that kind of thing. You see, when we try and conform God to something that we can grasp in our imagination, all we end up doing is diminishing Him. This is just, I'm just trying to help you understand some of the principles here that's at work and why it is that we have this desire to see what we worship, but, but in, in that instinct, we're actually diminishing the reality of who God is because He cannot be captured in any one image. There must be then some deeper ways in, that you can encounter him than just through your eyes, mustn't there? But here's another way that I think is maybe even more relevant to us today. This urge to kind of see what we worship. And it's this, that we, we have this desire to create an image, and I want to put that in inverted commas, an image of God that is detached From his word, as he's shown us who he is. What do I mean? Well, you've first got to ask yourself the question, how do we know God? How do we know what he's really like? And the only answer that the Bible gives is that we have to know him through his own revelation, his words. We understand aspects of who he is through creation, but you can only really build in the most accurate and detailed picture by understanding who he's shown himself to be through words. And then you ask, well, which words and the answer, of course, is the words that he alone has spoken, the words in this book. So if you have other words about him that aren't derived from or don't find their root in this book, then they are, they're the speculation of men, aren't they? Any of us can take a guess at what God is like, but it doesn't carry with it the sense of authority that the Bible does. I can tell you something of God's character and tell you, I think God is like this. But unless I've, unless I've sort of unless I sort of extracted my idea of who God is and explained it to you from the Bible itself, then all I'm doing is engaging in, in guesswork. Now, he, here's where the problem comes in. Because if you ask yourself, why is it that so many of the... There are so many divisions among Christians at the moment in, in, at the time in which we live, and disagreements... Very public disagreements about what is truth and what is righteousness and what, is, um, what are the things that Christians can support and what are the things that Christians can be against. When you ask, what is it that lies at the root of so much that, that separates Christians from Christians and which discredits the church and which in fact has led to the emptying of churches. Why is it that some churches are empty rather than filling up? Why is it that they they seem to preach something which no one wants to listen to and a gospel which is empty of all its power? And I think the answer actually lies here, that, that nothing could be more important for the 21st century church than to grasp this. That for some time now, Christians have had this instinct to decide for themselves what God is like. And typically the way it runs is like this. You choose for yourself one of the attributes of who God is that he showed himself in the Bible. It's usually this attribute that the the Bible says God is love. And you hold on to that and say, this is going to be the one thing I know about God to the exclusion of everything else. And so you take that attribute and you elevate it and put it up on supreme place. And you say everything else that, that seems not to fit with my view of my image of who God is now in my mind, I can exclude and push to the margins and ignore and deny. And what you end up doing is not preaching or believing in a true God anymore. What you end up doing is believing in a distortion of who God is based on your own preferences and your imagination. It's a God that you have made for yourself. Not one that you have fashioned with your hands out of metal or wood or clay. But one that you have fashioned in your imagination. Excuse me. (laughs) How would you feel if people did that about you? Treated you that way? Rarely do we enjoy being known for one of our attributes. Let's say you're a beautiful woman. How do you feel when people treat you on a very two-dimensional level as just a beautiful woman? Nothing else about you really matters. There's no depth to your person. You are just a beautiful person. That's it. Or if you're known for being funny, that's part of who you are. It's wonderful to celebrate these aspects of your personhood. But when that's the only thing that you're known for, when it's the only thing you're appreciated for, you actually feel that people don't really know the real you. That they're looking at you through a very narrow lens. And in some way, they don't know you at all. The same could be said of anything. Let's say a professional skill. You're a whiz with IT. The only peop- reason people are ever interested in you is when your computers break. And otherwise, they have no interest in you as a friend or as a, as a person. They don't understand the multiple layers to, your, to who you are, what makes you happy, what makes you angry, what give, enlivens your life outside of the fact that you know your zeros and your ones. Can you see how this diminishes us when we would even we, are reduced, and, and we are many layers more shallow than, than God himself, when we are reduced to just one thing about us, then really you're not, it's not the real you that's known, is it? And can you see how so many Christians, in, or so-called Christians, take one aspect of who, who they think God is, which they, in their own authority, elevate above all the others and then distort the image of who God is. And friends, this is one of the most dangerous things you do because at some point, you've got to recognize that your view of God has tipped from being a a relationship with the real God to a relationship of God of your own making. And that you are merely tricking yourself. This is why, as Christians, one of our greatest duties is not just to take and select our favorite bits about God in the Bible, but to understand the full breadth of who He is as a person revealed to us through Scripture and not diminish Him in any way because to do so is to create an image of God that that lessens His glory. And there may be aspects of who God is that frightens you. So it should be. So it should be. You do yourself no favor when you ignore or deny the danger of who God is. When you pretend that he's something less than he is. I think the only antidote to this desire to, to see what we worship, to take God and diminish him into something that we can sort of put our Put a, put a handle on and grasp and contain is that we, can, we must rid ourselves of this urge and rather know him through his word. It's the only way that you can know God fully and truly and completely. Not that you can ever know God completely, but that you can know him truly and in increasing measure. But the other way that we break this command is almost the very opposite thing. It's the urge not to see what we worship, but rather to worship what we see. So if the one was to take God and, 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 and scale him down to something that we like or manage, the other inclination of the human heart is to find something in creation and then elevate it to the place of, of something worthy of worship, worthy of your heart's adoration. It's our tendency to turn anything in creation into an object of worship, which is what he describes here. So on the one hand, we... We shouldn't make itself a carved image, but he says, or any likeness of anything that's in heaven above or that's in the earth beneath or that's in the water under the earth, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. Now, this is related to what we were talking about last week, isn't it? So much so that some people have felt actually that these two commandments are the one and the same, but I don't think that's quite the case. But it's related to what we were talking about last week, that there is, an, there is a tendency in every heart towards idolatry. But the, the focus of this command has a particular attention upon your eyes for some reason. Now, I want to explain this to you, but I think probably the best way we can do it is to go to Psalm chapter 8, which I think is on page 735, Psalm 8. And I want to show you three things which are true of us, which make sense of what we're talking about here, our tendency to worship created things. Here are the three truths that we need to grasp. The first is this, that we as humans were designed for glory. We seek it, we desire it, we admire it, we worship it. Glory is what fills and re- fills your heart with passion and fire. You may never use the word glory. It may not be part of your vocabulary. But there is something in you that yearns for and resonates with Beauty and glory and grandeur in all things. And that is partly because God has made you that way. You see the first five of the psalm. It says, yet you have made mankind a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You put all things under his feet. And so on. This is why in every field of human endeavor, there is within us the desire to to find glory. You know, from things as, as opposite as bodybuilding and engineering, there is the opportunity for glory. You can be the most sculpted physique or you can be the most brilliant engineer, but you hunger for glory in whatever field you're in. And we hunger to find glory and to find people who are glorious, people worthy of our admiration and worship. It's true of us as humans that there, there is something in us that, that is glorious and that we love and, and admire about ourselves and about others. So it's something that's, that resonates in the deepest part of your heart. So we've got to put that idea in place that we were designed for glory. Here's another idea we've got to put in place that there is glory in creation, it's not perfect. But there's things about this world that can take your breath away, aren't there? I mean, absolutely take your breath away. It's true at the microscopic level. Do you remember the first time you had the opportunity to look through a microscope at school, at a slide, perhaps of cells, and gaze into the intricacy of what was happening at that level in your body? Or the first time you looked through a telescope at the stars or a planet, or gaze into space on a night where there were no streetlights, when you could see into the distant galaxies, and it evokes inside you worship. This is why I think these, you know, the BBC programs like Planet Earth and Blue Planet—they are so wildly popular. It's not because they're in some way improving what's out there, but rather because they're representing what's out there more truly. With more accuracy and more detail. And our hearts pump faster. And our, our breath goes shallow when we see the amazing beauty that God has put into creation. He says it in verse 3 and 4, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? He says, everything you made takes my breath away such that even mankind looks small in comparison to the things you've made. And then you've got to put in place this third idea. The glory that we see in God's creation is a reflection of himself. In a sense, there's something of the divine that is distilled into the entire universe, but in different ways, in different places and forms. He says it in those first two verses, O Lord our God, How majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. And out of the mouth of babies and infants. You've established strength because of your foes. So if you are hardwired with a hunger and a desire to see, find and enjoy glory. And this world that we live in, in some way pulsates with the glory of God. It's no wonder then that there is a kind of resonant frequency when your eyes open to the things that are around you. You know what a resonant frequency is? If we put through a sound at just the right tone through these speakers, at the right frequency through these speakers, the same, you know when you flick a a, a posh wine glass, not the cheap ones that just go conk conk, but the posh ones that ring. They have a frequency that they ring out. If you can magnify that sound through the speakers so loudly, the thing will shatter eventually because it will vibrate so violently. And there's something in you that, that vibrates like a resonant frequency with glory in the world that God made because you were made for glory and God put his glory into creation. It's a wonderful thing and it explains all of your loves in life. It explains everything that you run after in life things you desire, the things you hunger for, the loves that you have, it's going, your heart is resonating to certain cues. I think this is why almost every religion has in some way extracted some part of creation and then elevated it to be an object of worship. And it's true even in our secular world. When you think about what is the dominant sort of religious view of the age, it's naturalistic materialism. Or even if you can put it this way, scientism. It's really the worship of creation. Because you're saying, this is the only thing worthy of my, my devotion and my time and my energy. is to study this world and, and this universe in which we live. It's really this glory hunger inside you resonating with God's world. And what does this mean for us in a secular age? Because we don't form and fashion idols, do we? Like the Israelites did, even as these, this command was being written. Does that mean that somehow we, you know, as Londoners, have outgrown this urge towards worshipping created things? An urge which has been present in every culture through all of time. Have we somehow outgrown it and gone past it? And I think, no, that would be a very stupid way of thinking, wouldn't it? Because I don't think humans don't really change, do they? (laughs) We haven't changed. But maybe it's just found a new forms. Think about this with me for a moment. Think about how our economy works. Our economy is powered by portraying before you images for you to worship and desire. It's called advertising. But what it really is, is manipulating the human heart and this glory hunger that was wired into you by God... And saying, look, you've got this desire in your life, and here's this thing that I put before you as an image, and it resonates with your heart to the degree that you now need it and you must have it. It's how all advertising works, whether it's advertising of products or of lifestyles. Anything that you can imagine is glory hunger, the yearning, the resonance in you to desire something which will satisfy. And you can't understand the power of these things, how the biggest companies on the planet can be driven by advertising and and funded by it unless you realize that they are tapping into this most basic of human urges, the desire to make images and to worship them. So you look at at us and we think we're so clever and so sophisticated, don't we? Because we're we're not captured by these sort of carved idols that we have on shelves in our homes, but then you, you start to look a little bit deeper at all the endeavor and the work that drives everybody to get out of bed at the crack of dawn and go and do their, do their penance and do their worship at the desk and before the computer in order to, in order to appease the God of what they can fill their life with through what has been told them, this is the good life. This is the life that you need. This is the holiday you need. This is the possession you need. This is the education you need. This is the career you need. This is the product you need that will fill that glory hunger and satisfy you forever. Can you see how we're no more engaged with reality than any culture that's ever lived? Because we're not not immune to this longing. To worship images. Think about how social media works these days. I don't think it's any coincidence that the, most, the fastest growing and the most powerful all the social media um, options is the image based one. Because there is, there's a worship Thing going on in your heart, isn't there? That comes through your eyes. And I'm trying to help you to see, friends, that this learning, this yearning to worship what we see explains so much of the things we do. The things we run after. And what does that mean for you as a Christian? How can you live in a glory-infused world? A world that's filled with the glory that God put into it and yet survive the urge to, in some sense, worship the things around you. How do you do that? Well, one level we can answer this, that you've got to understand that there are two ways of of reacting to the glory that's everywhere around you in creation. That you can either view these things as destinations or as signposts. If you see created things as a destination, what that means is that the images around you that stimulate your desires, but lie to you by telling you this will fulfill you, you have to recognize that those things cannot be the ultimate thing worth living for. Now this is the problem, because so many people in our culture are enslaved to to image and to images. Because if you take away with the worship of God, what you're left with is nothing but created things. This is why people become enslaved to lust. Because an image of a body resonates with the glory hunger in your heart. And you think, unless I have that, then my life can never be satisfied. Because the image of a car resonates with you. Because the image of a home or of a holiday or of a lifestyle. This is what explains our slavery to the economy. It's imagination fueled idolatry that terminates on created things as the destination of your heart's longings. But a Christian is able to discern, or should be able to discern, between things, the glory and things that, and whether those things are a destination or merely a signpost. What I mean by that is that you can appreciate. You should be able to appreciate, as the psalmist does, when I, when I gaze at your heavens, or when I gaze at the beauty all around me, I can appreciate these things, but recognize that it's, a glory, it's the glory of God that is infused and that bleeds into the things that he made. Because in some way, everything in creation reflects an aspect of who he is. But that allows you, that view alone allows you to put things in their place. To be able to look at the stuff in your life and the stuff around you, the images portrayed before your eyes, and kill the lie that says you have to bow down by attaining, by possessing, by yearning for, by killing the lie that you can't do without this thing, by freeing you from the need to serve the gods of this age. Now practically, what does that look like? Well, all I'm helping you to see, friends, is something which is true of you at the deepest level, of your, your very being and your biology, that you are hardwired by God in the way God made you to see and pursue glory and to worship, to worship images because ultimately you were made to worship Him and to see Him with your eyes but that this world is exploiting that aspect of you. I just heard the other day that you know, if you put somebody in a scanner and look at what's going on in the brain of a man when he looks at, um, see which parts of him light up when he sees a beautiful woman in a red dress. Apparently, you can show that man the images of a, a beautiful red sports car and the exact same parts of his brain light up. It's interesting, isn't it? But it just shows you how we have, we're hardwired with this glory hunger. That's what I'm trying to help you to see. And if you're not aware of that, then your life can be exploited. But if you are aware of that, then you can learn under God's strength to simply close your eyes. I think part of the impulse of this command is that you should not look at created things and turn them into objects of worship in your heart. Jesus put it like this in Matthew 6. He says, The eye is the lamp of the body. Really, that's very interesting because he's elevating your eyes to a place perhaps higher than any of us would give them. Because he says, If your eye is healthy, and the word actually just means single, It's an idea that you have a very singular vision in life, that you kind of have, if you have the ability to look with blinkers, if your eye is healthy, he says, your whole body will be full of light. You ask yourself, what are you supposed to look at singularly to have a body that's full of light? What are your eyes meant to be focused in and drawn in upon that would fill your whole being with light? I'll leave you with that question. (laughs) Because then he says, if your eye is bad, and the opposite of being a single healthy eye is an eye that darts around, looking, looking from left to right for the glory in created things. If your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? He's describing a kind of emptiness and a dullness of life and of spirit that comes when your eyes are consumed only with the things around you, created things, rather than the life that is full of light and joy when you have a singular eye that is fixed on the living God. It's interesting that immediately he says, no one can serve two masters for either he'll hate the one and love the other or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So interesting, isn't it? How he he pairs these things together. The healthy eye is the eye that looks to God and serves him. The unhealthy eye is the eye that looks to things, created things, and serves them. And becomes enslaved ultimately to possessions and to material objects and to money itself. So friends, what we're trying open up to you is that you have an urge in you to see what you worship, to diminish God, but also to worship what you see, which is to elevate creation. And this explains what's bad in religion and what's bad in society. And it's all there in the heart of the second commandment. But I want to now help you to see why this is a problem particularly for God. And it comes down to this. These are, these tendencies in your heart are a problem because God is jealous. He says, you shan't bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. The word jealousy has overtones of petty-mindedness and mean-mindedness in our society, doesn't it? Of A small and weak person is unable to control their emotions. And I know that there are t- contexts in life where jealousy is small and petty-minded. Like when you can't stand it if one of your best friends hangs out with someone else. and Jealousy burns in your heart because you want to possess and control. And there are ugly forms of jealousy. We can grant that. But the Bible also shows us that there are good and necessary forms of jealousy. If a man watches another man make a move on his wife and he shrugs his shoulders. What do you think of him? Shouldn't rather his heart burn with jealousy such that he comes in and interrupts and stops and interferes with and maybe does harm to the other man, (laughs) right? Would you blame him? Isn't that kind of jealousy exactly what should burn in every heart of a married man? So there are good forms of jealousy. As a parent, when you give your child a gift, you know, if you give your, if you give your, your child a PlayStation, for example... And that child is no longer interested in spending time with or talking to you and is more interested in spending time with that gift. Then what starts to bubble up in your heart as a parent is a form of jealousy. A good form of jealousy. I'm jealous for the love of my child. That he's become wrapped up with the gifts rather than with me. So when God says to his bride, his church, his people who is covenanted to himself, I'm a jealous God. It means, in the simple sense, that he doesn't want you to adore things more than you adore him. Anything. Anything in your life. Maybe your spiritual sickness, if indeed you, you sense that you are spiritually sick, is because you have loved something more than God. And God says, I'm a jealous God. But I want you to consider this. At a, just one level deeper than that as well. I don't think it's as simple as us just to say that God is jealous for your worship. I think it's more, more rich than that. I think he is jealous that you worship his son, Jesus Christ. Because after Jesus is born and comes into the world, we're told in more than one place in the New Testament that he alone is the image of God that none of us can fashion or form anything material to represent God that's worthy of our worship. But Paul tells us that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. In the book of Hebrews, it tells us he is the exact representation of his nature. So it's like this. It's like God wanted to keep the table clear because he wanted space upon the table in which to place something worthy of worship. He says, I don't want you to have in your heart any desire after created things. Because there is only one thing in this world that is worthy of that central place in your heart. And it would be the coming of his Son Jesus, the one true image. The one who is the one who alone can can portray the glory of God in all its fullness to us. And who's worthy of that central place of worship in your heart, the throne of your heart. And to be a Christian is to allow Jesus to occupy that central place. It's nothing less than that, friends. Jesus said that he who has seen me has seen the Father. And he regularly in the Gospels showed us that true spirituality is the ability to see for the first time. The ability to see who Jesus is without any obscurity. Or confusion. And to be captivated by him. To have a single eye. To have a healthy eye. Because your eye is fixated on on Jesus. It means friends. That if you are not a Christian. The simplest way. That we can understand and analyze. That. Is to say that you have never. Really seen Jesus. You've never really grasped who he is. Because if you had, you could not help but worship. You could not help but offer yourself entirely without reservation to him. But it means, the flip side of that is that true spirituality the kind which ought to characterize all of us as we want to grow in love with God and in the center of his will is learning to see Jesus more clearly. In Hebrews 12, it puts it like this. Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Which means that, friends, it's not merely looking at Jesus as a person that captures and captivates our hearts and frees us from our slavery to created things. It's also looking at him in the light of what he's done for you. Looking at him in the light of the fact that he gave himself on the cross and that his blood was poured out to bring freedom to you from the slavery to creation, that you might worship him, that he might forgive you of your sin, that he might redeem you to know him and to have your heart filled with a glory that is true and that is pure and that is everlasting. So that that resonance in your heart might meet its true, created fulfillment and satisfaction when you come to know Jesus. It's interesting, by the way, as a final aside, that in one of John's letters, he tells us that when we see Jesus as he is, we'll become like him. That the ultimate sort of climax and culmination of what it means to believe in Jesus is that one day you will see him with your actual eyes and instantaneously you'll be transformed. And you ask yourself, how does that work? How does my seeing something change my life? And of course the answer is it's happening all, all the time. The things you see are transforming you Constantly transforming what you love and what you hate and what you run after and what you devote your energies to. Your eyes are changing you all of the time. But when your life is flooded, in that final day with the true vision of Jesus in all his glory, all creation worship will be obliterated from your heart because nothing can stand in comparison to him. That is why sin will be gone forever. You can't love sin and love Jesus at the same time. And you can't love sin when you've seen Jesus truly. So friends, our longing, our desire as believers, and I think the beating heart of this second command is God's desire, the Father's desire that you as Christians see Jesus more deeply and more truly with every passing moment of your life. I want us to spend some time just meditating on that in the quiet. The guys are going to come up in a moment and lead us in some worship. but I think it's right that we all respond to God very personally. Because I think when we look in our own hearts, there's not a one among us who can't think of the ways in which our hearts become captivated by created things. Or indeed, the way in which we diminish God to something manageable, something we like. And God wants these things to be obliterated from your soul. He wants you to see Jesus. Why don't we bow our heads and let's pray together. Jesus, we confess that so much of our frailty, and particularly our spiritual frailty, is because we take our eyes off you in the... In some sense, Lord, that we fill our minds and our hearts with images that are not you. And Lord, we want to be people who have a single eye. We pray, Lord, that you'd help us to see you in your glory, to run with endurance the race that's set before us, looking to you, looking at you the one who endured the cross, who took our shame away when you bled there. Lord, as we confess our sin to you now, we pray, Lord, would you come and breathe fresh grace to our lives that we might run with more vigor and more strength in the days to come, that we might love you more passionately, that we might conform every part of our lives and of our will and of our decisions to your perfect will as we seek to live lives that are in honor of you, as it were, bowed down before you, completely surrendered to you. I pray, Lord, for those who don't know you, Lord, who are not Christian, who are wondering, who is this Jesus? I pray you begin to show aspects of who you are, that They know how to seek you and how to find you, Lord. We pray it in your precious name.